This morning's scripture is taken from John, chapter 12, verses 30 through 32. John, chapter 12, verses 30 through 32. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What a joy it is for me to be back with you here at Olive Branch. I have looked forward to this since last year. Brother George called me not long after I had gotten home and said, Will you come back? And I have been excited about our time together. I do miss being at Fayetteville. That is home to me. That's where my family is. That's the people that I love, the people that I intend on spending eternity with. At least they're close about them are there. But I am so excited this morning to have several of the Fayetteville family here with me. You know, last year... They surprised me at the Sunday evening service, and I thought, man, the brethren have sent out spies. They don't believe me. <clears throat> well, I just brought the spies with me this time. <clears throat> but it's good to have several of them here. It's good to see old friends. It's really good to see Mr. Red here with us this morning, one of the kids that I call my own. He and his family are here. And it's just great to be here. This is a home away from home for me. And uh, this is my home in Mississippi, and so I'm glad to be here. If you're visiting with us, thank you. You honor us with your presence, and we're appreciative of you being here with us. I challenge you to be with us this week. We're going to be exploring some things concerning of where we are in our day and time and how relevant the message of Jesus Christ is and what we need to be doing to getting that message out. I shared in Bible class this morning that it can be done. There will be those in eternity who will be able to stand and say that the gospel went to all the world during our generation. And brethren, I'm convinced more than I've ever been. I believe with all of my being that we can accomplish that feat again. That we, the children of God, the blood-bought, those of us who have the promise of eternal life as an inheritance can get the Word of God to every creature in our lifetime. And I'm tired, I'm sick and tired of my brethren, those who hold the valuable, unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ hostage and we're not getting it to the world. I believe we can do it. And I believe God's positioning us to where the message will be heard. I want to explore that this week, and I want to look at some things. So I challenge you to be here. This morning, if you have your copy of the text, as we meet God in His Word, please go with me to John chapter 20. I want us to look at something that I believe is a case study of where we are today. And if we will do what they did in the first century, that we can be well on our way to getting the job done. I said it in Bible class, you'll hear me say it every night. Death is certain. We're all getting older. If you don't believe it, just look in the mirror. You can have surgery to tie stuff up, to add hair, to take away hair, to do all you want to do, but you're getting older. You can't deny it. And we have the promise that the Lord's coming back. 
The Lord is coming back. Death is certain. Eternity is way too long. And listen to me, church. Hell is way too hot for your worst enemy to spend eternity there. We've got to do something. We've got to get the word out. And I believe if we will reactivate the book of Acts, that we can get it done. John chapter 20. I believe we find the disciples where many of us are today. You see, their world had come to an end. The Messiah, the one sent, Jesus, the Savior, had died. He was there in the grave. They had seen it with their own eyes. They had been with Him. They had handled Him. They had witnessed the feeding of the multitudes. Oh, just a few fish and a little bread had became a supper for thousands. They had seen it with their own eyes. A man who couldn't walk uh, from birth, everybody knew that he was lame. They saw when Jesus spoke to him that he stood up and he walked on his feet to the point that the people were astonished. They were there. They were there with him at the graveyard. You know, I love this scene because... It makes Jesus seem closer to me. He's been where I've been. Brethren, I've been at the graveyard. I've been at the graveyard with numerous brethren. I've been there myself, sitting on the front row in front of the casket. I've been there myself. I know the emptiness. I know the fear. I know the pain. And Jesus has been there. The disciples were there with Him on that day. They were there when Jesus said to Mary and Martha, take me to the graveyard. And they escorted him out to town. And Jesus was there in the graveyard and he saw the people and he saw them crying. And the scripture says, and Jesus wept. He's been there. He knows what it feels like. And they were eyewitnesses to the event. Jesus dropped his head and he said, Father, thank you for what you're fixing to do. And then Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And alive, more alive than he had ever been, Lazarus walked out of that grave and showed himself to the people to the point that it was so obvious that it was out doubt that he was dead and now he is raised at the words of Jesus that the authorities put a target on his back and sought to kill him. These men had seen these events taking place. The feeding of the thousands. The lame would walk. The blind could see. The dead had come out of the grave. One of them in the midst of this audience had even with Jesus walked on water. And now he's dead. They saw it. They were there in the garden when they came and got him, when they took him, when Judas came up. And oh, I love the upper room. I've shared some of the scenes of the upper room with you. Remember in the upper room, Jesus said, I call you friend. You're talking about having friends in high places. Now when Jesus is your friend, you got a friend in high places. Jesus says, I call you friend. I don't call you servant anymore because a, a servant don't know what the master's doing. I call you friend. And just hours after that, there in the garden, the mob walked up and Judas led the way. Go back and look how Jesus greeted him. He said, hello, friend. Judas kissed him. 
You know what happened that night. They took him. They put him on trial, a mockery of a trial. Peter denied him. John stayed close. The others scattered. And, and before you knew it, the crowd was hollering, Crucify him! Crucify him! Let his blood be on us and our children and our children's children. Put this man to death! And they did. The Son of God. Emmanuel. The one who made you. The one who sustains you. The one who saves you. The one who will judge you. They killed him. They drove spikes through his hands and through his feet. They spit on him. They laughed at him. They popped him in the face. They dressed him and undressed him. Then they hung him. I can only imagine the thud of the cross when it dropped in the hole. And these men saw it all. John was there. Jesus' his best friend. Hanging from the cross, he looked down and he saw his mama and he said, John, take care of mama. Mama, go with John. And now in John chapter 20, they're huddled together. The cross is over. The scene is past. They've seen it. Their Messiah, their leader, their Rabboni, their teacher, their friend, their king is dead and he's in a grave and they know it. And look where the Bible says they were. John chapter 20 and verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for they feared the Jews. Brethren, I believe today in April of 2009 that we, those who have been in contact with the blood of Jesus through immersion for the remission of our sins, those of us who called ourselves the saved, the redeemed, those of us who have the mission that Jesus left those disciples with are in the same place those disciples were that day that held Him, beheld Him, and lived with Him. I believe we're shut up behind closed doors, scared to death. And as a result of that, our numbers are dropping. I don't care how you add it up. Here in the States, there's not as many of us as there was. Congregations are closing their doors. Thank God, praise God, and be praised to those men and women who have committed their sweat to the place like this. You're growing. We at Fayetteville are growing, and God's blessing us. But overall, the church is not growing in this country. Why? I believe we're afraid to admit it, but I believe we're where those early disciples were ourselves. We're shut up behind closed doors, scared to death. We don't know what we're scared of, but we're scared. We're afraid if we go this way, then this will happen. Or if we go this way, this will happen. And as a result, we've sat so long that we've convinced ourselves that setting is what God expects of us. 
The devil has taken our warped thinking and capitalized on it. You read article after article in our brotherhood papers. You hear sermon after sermons about the graying of the church. I understand that concept. My hair is getting gray. I went and got a haircut. Y'all know Joni, my Fayetteville family. Y'all know Joni. Joni's been cutting my hair since I was 12 years old. Her husband, her now husband, and I both dated Joni. I was the tag-along. Come on, Jeff, let Joni cut your hair. She's been cutting my hair since I was 12. One person cut my hair other than Joni. Joni had cancer, had to have surgery. She was sick, and I got a haircut. And Joni said, well, how'd you like the way she did it? I says, Joni, I had forgotten that a haircut wasn't supposed to hurt. <laughs> Y'all don't tell Joni I said that. Joni calls me lovingly fat boy. I don't know why. <clears throat> Good-looking, smart, I think, but fat boy, I don't know. Anyway, yesterday morning I walked in and she said, sit down, fat boy. What kind of haircut you want? And I said, well, just cut the gray out. And she laughed and she said, you'd be bald. <laughs> I understand the graying of the church. I understand that the membership is aging. I understand what's happening among our youth, that they're leaving us in droves and we're sitting on our hands doing nothing. We're not even keeping what we got, much less adding to. And I believe it's because we're behind closed doors, scared to death. We lose that little, if we use that little bit of money we got in the bank, what will happen if we need a new roof? If we use that little money in the bank, what will happen if we need a new parking lot? If we use that little money in the bank to put the word on the street that Jesus is king, and we use that money to do that, what happens if one of the air conditioners goes out? I'll tell you what will happen. We'll put buckets on the floor to keep the roof, uh, to catch the water leaking. We'll park on gravel. And you know what? We can sweat a little bit if the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. But we won't do it. We're sitting on our bank accounts and the church is dying. And if that don't scare you, then you can't be scared. They thought it was over. They thought it was over. They had been with him. They had heard all of his talk. They had heard what he had said. They, they heard him say, this temple is going to be torn down, but I'm going to raise it up in three days. They had understood that, and, but they didn't get it. And as a result, because he had been killed, they thought they were going to be killed. The remedy to their problem is in the rest of that verse. When the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of them. Brethren, in the short few minutes I've got left, I want to beg you to let Jesus come in your life and stand in the midst thereof. You see, when Jesus steps in your life, something's going to happen. When Jesus comes into your life, change is going to take place. When Jesus comes into your life, 
things are going to get started that have never been started before. When Jesus steps into your life, that which drew you, allured you, that which had hold of you is going to be let go and you're going to head in a new direction, a right direction, a godly direction. Paul said to our brethren at Colossae in chapter 3 and verse number 1, when your life that is hid in Christ, when you allow Jesus to step in your life, He takes over, He's the focus, and His mission becomes your mission, and His will becomes your will. I preach several gospel meetings a year, hold several different uh, types of lectureships, speeches. I've got one next month up in North Georgia on marriage. Man, I'm taking Miss Tammy with me. Miss Tammy and Ellie were going to come with me this weekend. They were going to surprise y'all. We had made arrangements for them to come. Tammy has gone back to school. She wants to be a teacher. Our college savings plan has been called Tammy Goes to Work. And so she decided to become a teacher. And she and Ellie will finish school about the same time. Ellie will finish next year. Y'all pray for Ellie and pray for the students that Tammy will be teaching. Tammy has a class on Saturdays. She couldn't miss the class. We participate at Fayetteville in Lads to Leaders and have for many years. And today um, is a dinner in honor of those participants. And so Ellie wanted to be there for that. And so they couldn't be with me. But I promise they're going to be here. When I'm going to do these speaking engagements, many times if it's not a special thing, they'll ask, Jeff, we want you to preach and teach in such a way that people will be more committed to Jesus. You know what? I believe we've been preaching commitment to Jesus till we're blue in the face and we've learned that it doesn't work. And for us to continue preaching the same thing, expecting a different result, is the sign, well, you know what it is. It's just ridiculous. To do the same thing and expect something different. Why? You see, it's not commitment that Jesus has asked for. You're going, wait a minute, preacher, where are you going? It's not commitment Jesus has asked for. Show it to me, book, chapter, and verse. It is not your commitment He wants. He wants more than that. He wants your surrender. Do you know what it means to surrender? Go back and read world history. When there's been a nation warring with a nation... And the one that surrenders, do they have any say-so? They have none. We occupy them as Americans in our American history. We tell them what's what, who's who, and when to do what they need to do. We become the... They surrender their will to us. And brethren, that's what we need to do to Jesus is surrender our will to His. And when we surrender our will to Him, our commitment will follow every time. When Jesus steps into your life, I beg you to surrender. Don't just say, I'm going to make Him a priority in my life. That's not what Jesus asked for. He asked for your full denial. You know what He said? You're not going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You're not worthy. What did he say? Deny yourself. When you allow your will to become zero and his will to become everything, then your commitment will follow.
And you know as well as I do, when you surrender and commit, then His ways become your ways. Why do you think those early church members were able to do what they were able to do? In Acts chapter 17, and this week we're going to look at it, starting this afternoon more specifically. In Acts chapter 17, these are those, you know, early on in the chapter, these are those that have turned the world upside down. Why? Because His mission became their mission. Because they surrendered to Him. Let Jesus step in your life and surrender to Him. Thomas wasn't present. You'll see this happen. Thomas wasn't present. When they were in the room scared to death, who knows where Thomas the twin was? Eight days later, Jesus did the same thing. They told him, Thomas, the Lord's risen. We've seen Him. And Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it till I see it. Thomas was the ho-hum one. All right, if that's what you're going to do. Remember when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. Thomas says, let's don't go. We're going to all die. Jesus said, I'm going. Thomas said, okay, let's all go die. That's Thomas's demeanor. I got to see it. Being assembled together, look over in the end of the chapter, being assembled together, Jesus stood in their midst again and Thomas was with them. And Jesus said, Thomas, put your finger, take your fist, put it right here. And when Jesus came in the presence of Thomas and Thomas allowed him into his life, I want you to look what Thomas said. In verse number 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. You do a little examination of that word Lord in the original text by curios. You are my everything. You are my commander-in-chief. You are in control. I have zero input into what I do. You determine that. Thomas said, I surrender. And he said, my God, my Theos, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You are God. Scripture doesn't reveal much to us about Thomas after the early days of the church. History says that he went to a nation called India and planted the gospel seed there. Just as a matter of interest, the gospel is spreading fastest in Africa and India. Thomas surrendered. Thomas surrendered to the Lord, and when he did, his life changed. Fear no longer dominated, but what did? Courage, boldness. He went out and he did what he needed to do. And history further says that Thomas died for the cross. For Jesus. Our time is leaving us quickly. I want you to go back to the first part of John's historical account of the life of Christ in John chapter 4. And I want you to see something about a woman. A woman that Jesus had an impact on. You'll recall she was of Samaria, biracial, a half-breed. That's what we would call them, disrespected, not worthy. She was a woman which gave her either even less status. Isn't it amazing what Christianity will do to a culture of status seekers? It is a levelizing gospel. We're all equal in Christ. We wear the title of sinner. Once we become saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, 
based upon our belief, our repentance, and our confession, and meeting His blood and immersion, we become saved sinners, but we're all equal. Jesus ran across this woman. He talked to her and talked about her marriage situation. And, and this woman said, I, I, I kind of gather that you are a prophet, verse 19. And she said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you'll say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me. The hour comes when neither shall in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you'll worship the Father. You know you worship what you know not, and you know that you not what you worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, he says, and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God's a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah's come, which is called Christ. When he is come, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, you're talking to him. Jesus stepped into this woman's life. And he made such a difference in this woman's life that she left everything she was doing. Go on and read the story. She was at the well to get water and she left her water pot. And what was she doing? Jesus had such a profound impact on her life that she left what she was doing and she went in the city. And history records through Scripture that she was on a mission trip for Jesus, telling people, I've seen the Messiah. What a difference Jesus will make in your life if you'll just let him. The fear that holds us back, the fear that we stand behind and we don't get the message out and we're shrinking and we're changing and we're, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do when the reality of the picture is if we will lift Jesus up, Jesus and Jesus alone will draw all men. It's not going to be programs. It's not going to be fancy buildings. It's not going to be special days. It's not going to be radio. It's not going to be television. Brethren, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And when you surrender to Him, hide yourself in Him and let Him be seen in you, you have nothing to fear because your friends won't be able to throw. Hey, listen, I know you. You're a hypocrite. I know you. I know what you do. Because when they see you, they will see Jesus and nothing sticks as an accusation to my Lord. Church, when you and I get busy with the message of Jesus, it's then that our generation will turn the world upside down. It's then that we will see growth beyond measure. It's then that we will become the full functioning body of Jesus Christ. It's not bricks and mortar, no, it's flesh and blood. The church, the ecclesia, the called out, when we will function as a family, love one another as a family, mentor one another as a family, and be willing to die for one another as a family, it's then and only then that we're the body of Christ. You see, 
I'm flawed. Paul thinks he's got the title. But I'll challenge him with my sin history as chief of sinners. If it were put in a volume with eight-point print, there'd be so many and you wouldn't be able to carry. But you see, it's Jesus, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, and Jesus alone that saves me. It's not fancy-talking preachers. It's not high-stepping elders. It's not hard-working deacons. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that we must preach. Brethren, we've got to put our focus on putting Jesus before the world. And when we do, not only will our lives change, but this old world will change. I beg you this morning to let Jesus step in your life. Free yourself from the shackles of fear. Free yourself from the shackles of sin that weigh you down. Free yourself from this old world that's headed for a devil's hell. And let Jesus save you. Your obedience will take you to the place where he'll save you. If you'll believe that he is, that he's the son of God and that he's the savior of the world. If you'll repent, metanoia, that means you change your mind, which means you change your behavior. In an essence, I'm headed this way and I turn and I go that way. I got to tell you all something funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching a gospel meeting in McMinnville, Tennessee. I was at this point in my lesson. And when I turned this way, the nursery was right there. And they had a two-way mirror. And I had said, going that way will lead to destruction. Going that way. And I turned and looked, and there I stood. I like to pass out. <laughs> I said, who put a mirror there? I hope they have it covered up when I go back in 2011. Repentance is a change of mind that brings on a change of direction. And you go from living for the world to living for Christ. And you walk in His direction. Your intent is to go His way. And you walk faithfully. And you continually confess that you're a sinner. And you identify those shortcomings in your life. And you ask for forgiveness. And John says He will continually cleanse you. That's His child. To become a child, you believe, repent, and confess. You make it known of your belief. And then you're immersed. That's how you let Jesus in your life. You're immersed for the remission of your sins. It's there where you meet the blood, Romans 6. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 5. The blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. Stubborn Saul, after three days being blind and hungry, Ananias had to finally say, Saul, why tarriest thou? Saul, why are you sitting there? Arise, get up, and be immersed, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Saul had a sin problem that only the blood of Jesus could take away, and we meet that blood in baptism. If Jesus sitting in your life, that's how you let him in. If you're one of his children today and you've told Jesus to hit the high road, you don't need him anymore, and you've changed your heart as one of his children, repent and pray that he'll forgive you and he will. If you're here this morning as a rebellious child, come home. Let Jesus back in your life and see the change that will take place. Peace will come, a peace that passes all understanding, Brother Paul said.
If you're here this morning and you have a sin problem that we can help you with, that you need the help of your brothers and sisters. Folks, the day's coming in the church where we're going to love each other to the point to where we can truly, James 5, confess our faults one to another and pray one for another. I believe the day's approaching quickly. I know it is at my family at Fayetteville to where we battle for each other in the war of sin. If you're here this morning and you're battling, you need our help, don't hesitate. Let Jesus step into your life while together we stand and sing.